Welcome to Beyond the Board, a podcast that explores the themes and real-life inspirations behind our favorite games. On today's episode of Beyond the Board, we'll be discussing the game Bonanza. Bonanza is a bean farming card game designed by Uvo Rosenberg and published by Rio Grande Games in 1997. Bonanza is for 2-7 players and a typical game takes 45 minutes to play. The theme of today's episode is coffee farming and roasting. Enjoy the episode! Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I'm Mike Riemann. And I'm Spencer Campbell. And this is Beyond the Board! Board, board, board. And this week, we're talking about Bonanza. Isn't that Bonanza theme? I think so. Oh, I never actually saw the show. So I can't I think I used to watch it with my dad after I watched like the 700 Club. Simpler times. Simpler times. Kindergarten. Uh, so Bonanza is a uh, it's a game by Rio Grande Games. Uh, it's an older game, actually. It used to be published by a different company before. German, that. originally a German game. Yeah. German company. 1997. 1997. It is 20 years old now. 20 year old game, and you could tell by the art. Actually, it looks like an older game, but it's still printed new, mm-hmm. and so you can still buy it new. And so it's a it's a weird kind of uh, dynamic. Just even just the art alone. With the game, but it is a fun game. Um, Spencer just learned it uh, a little while ago, but mm-hmm. uh, he he had a great time with it. He had a good time. It's all about building, um, or it's about bean farming, is what the main theme of the game is. And you're collecting cards and trading them in for money if you have enough of that certain type of bean. Um, and it's all about strategy and trading and figuring out which beans to grab and which beans not to give to the other player. Yeah, certain combinations or certain, uh, a number of a certain type of bean is worth more coins. So some beans are, there are more of them in the deck, and so you need a lot of them in order to train the, trade them in for some coin. And some of them are very rare, so if you just get a couple of them, you trade them for coin. If you've played Sushi Go, it's a similar men- mentality of how certain beans are, uh, or in that game, su- certain sushi are, they have certain trade-in conditions that are different from one another. Mm-hmm. And the rarer things are typically worth more. And that's why there's this whole negotiation, bargaining, trading aspect as well. Yeah. So the game's fairly simple once you learn it. And and I don't think there's much more description we need to give from that. Uh, it's just about farming um, certain types of beans and, and picking which ones you want to cash in for the for the money before the other ones, really. It's one of those games that really benefits from having more players in it because, like, we just before this, we played a, a two-player variation, and there are, there are rules for playing with two players, but just like in, like, you can't play Munchkin two-player because you're never going to help one another. In, in two-player Bonanza, we were very rarely wanting to ever trade or help one another because that was your sole opponent. But when you have a group of people you're more likely to make these sneaky alliances and try and backstab somebody and someone like that. Not to say it isn't a good two-player game. My wife and I play it uh, occasionally, and it's it's really nice to be able to uh, figure out what strategies are, to use where and like when to cash in your crops and when to give or let the other player have Definitely. beans. So, But it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's got a lot of fun little pictures, too. They are a little old-fashioned, but they, they're... they're that a, cute. They're adorable. So yeah. you've got, like, garden beans and cocoa beans, chili beans, soy beans, black-eyed beans, wax beans, stink beans, green beans, red beans, and blue beans, which we found out is not an actual that's, bean. That's the one that they made up. <laughs> black-eyed bean is kind of like a black-eyed bean. It's the same thing. 
but the blue bean is one that they distinctly made up. Mm-hmm. And the other bean that's in this is the coffee bean. And if there's anything that we love more than any of these other beans, it's coffee, because we probably have it every time we're recording this podcast. We're drinking it right now, to be perfectly honest. Uh, And uh, so so today's episode, we're actually going to focus on coffee bean farming. I feel also like that's probably the most information we could pull out of any of these beans. Mm -hmm. The cocoa bean would be interesting, too, just in terms of the cocoa trade and things like that. But I think we decided to focus on coffee, because it is probably the most traded commodity in the world at this point in time. And for a lot of com- uh, countries out there, it is the primary source of income. So it's a pretty interesting thing. And it, coffee is just everywhere. Everyone, Most people drink coffee. Everybody these loves days. coffee, yeah. And maybe we'll do a cocoa one when we do an expansion or something. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> but yeah, for today we're going to talk about coffee, and not the idea of brewing it or anything like that, but the actual farming process, because Bonanza is a farming game. And so we wanted to talk about what is it like to farm coffee beans. What is that whole process like? So, Well, let's start off by where does coffee come from? Where was the first coffee bean found? Uh, and why did people start drinking it? Like, what made you think of, oh, I'm going to steep this bean in some, in some water and I'm going to drink it? Uh, and that started um, back... Uh, in the early, a long time ago, uh, I don't remember the exact date, but in the kind of like the Yemen <laughs> this day, right this here, day, May third, right <laughs> that's when they started doing it. But it was, I believe, in the the Yemen region. They saw goats acting erratically. Uh, they had they saw them actively trying to get access to the leaves and fruit of a particular plant, and after they did, the the goats seemed energized and acting a little. A little crazy. They were more goaty than normal, huh? Yeah, and so people got interested. They, they saw that and thought, oh, I wonder if there's, there's something to that. Mm-hmm. It was actually a monastery that first started brewing it, and they took it and they realized that they could stay awake during their long, late-night prayer sessions. Yeah, out of the Arabian Peninsula is where you saw the, kind of the original brewing process of it. But before they even started brewing it, they actually just ate... The, the beans with the cherry that it's inside. And we'll talk a little bit about what the bean is composed of and everything. But early on, coffee, before it was even brewed, was used as a kind of an early energy bar. They would take the, the cherry that the bean is inside and they'd kind of ball it together with animal fat. And it was kind of a de facto old-fashioned energy bar that they could eat. <laughs> um, and then it was around 1000 AD that you saw it starting to be records of it being brewed in the Arabian Peninsula. And once once it started brewing and once the Europeans began moving about and colonizing, that's when it just started to spread everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so let's just talk about a coffee bean. And we, we're talking about fruit. And so you're thinking, well, it's a bean. Why is there mm-hmm. fruit? So when the coffee is picked, it's actually picked on a tree. And the tree produces these little red fruits. And the fruit inside there is the actual bean, and it's usually green. So so the outside is a red, like, skin layer. The inside of that is this this pulp, mm-hmm. basically. And then inside that is a parchment that's around the actual coffee bean. And there's, there's definitely more layers if you really want to dig deep into there. But that's basically what it is. And, and that red fruit that Mike was describing, they call it a cherry, right? It's yes. A, it's, a cher- it's the cherry of the, the coffee plant, the coffee tree. So think about an actual cherry. Yeah. When you actually have a cherry, you have a seed inside that cherry. 
think about it, it's exactly like that, where you do have an outer layer skin of that cherry. You have the juices inside the cherry, which you actually eat, and then you spit out the seed generally. Right. And that's how a coffee bean is. I've, I've had the opportunity to actually taste a raw. Oh, really? Uh, yours are like a, a ripe coffee bean, because I work for a coffee company, so that makes it convenient. How but is it? it's it's interesting, because it's, it's, it's fruity. Okay. Um, but the caffeine is still in that fruit part too. Right. It's not just in that bean. Right. And that's why the the goats were even getting some of it from the leaves of the plants as well. Mm. So like the the tree itself is kind of producing this the chemical component of the caffeine. We just get it most concentrated in the bean. I think mm-hmm. they actually. I, I know Starbucks started doing this, but a new thing that they're doing, which I guess is kind of an old thing, but they're taking the actual cherry and. drying it out and turning it into a tea. And so it's this weird kind of coffee-tea hybrid. It's very strange when you taste it because you're like, it tastes like tea because I'm drinking it like tea, Mm -hmm. but it also kind of tastes like coffee. That's and cool. it supposedly has the same caffeine content, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's fruity. And so I guess Starbucks is doing like a latte, and it's pretty terrible. But oh, nice. if you ever just have the tea just by itself, it's it's pretty cool. Okay. So these trees, they're they're basically producing fruit all year long, all season long. There are certain seasons, depending on which hemisphere you're in, that they will pick the fruit from it. But the trees are just constantly producing this fruit, and they they tend to produce about one to one and a half pounds of these cherries every season, and. The question is, I mean, we mentioned this earlier that we were talking about its origins in Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula, but now it's everywhere. So what, where exactly, what are we talking about when we talk about coffee-growing regions of the world at this point in time? Yeah, so what they call it is, they call it the coffee belt, and it's basically a belt that just extends from the equator all the way around the world. And mm-hmm. everywhere around the world in a big belt around the world, if the, belt, if the world got a belt and was trying to mm-hmm. hold up its pants... That's where it would be, and that's the only place you can actually really grow coffee regularly out in the out in the actual yeah. nature. <laughs> if you're aware of where the Tropic of Capricorn and the Cap- Tropic of Cancer are, those essentially are the the outer edges of this band, and everything in between them is that coffee growing region, the, the the bean belt, the coffee belt. And so it's there are there are two major varieties of coffee plant that basically make up. 90 plus percent of all of the coffee that is produced and shipped around the world. And one of them alone produces, I saw kind of a wide range of numbers as I was looking into this, but it seems to generally be somewhere between 70 to 80 percent of the coffee produced is this one particular variety. Mm -hmm. Now, we should try and figure out how this is pronounced, and I'll tell you how I thought it was pronounced, and then you can maybe... uh, Tell me how it's properly <laughs> pronounced, because I have no idea. Um, I've always said uh, Arabica. Sure, that makes sense. It, has, it makes sense if you don't if you've never heard the word before. Yeah, but grow uh, like ever since I've worked in coffee, mm-hmm. it's always been called Arabica whenever okay. I've heard it. But it might be called Arabica in some places. Who knows? Sure. But basically, it's Arabica or Arabica. We'll mm-hmm. call it Arabica for now. Sure. Uh, just because I think that's the more colloquial term. Uh, so there's Arabica and Robusta, and we'll talk about Arabica right now. But Arabica beans are generally grown at higher elevations mm-hmm. in cooler climates in this area. Uh, they still in that coffee belt, um, and it's most of the time it's hand picked because it's on these higher elevations mm-hmm. that you can't get a machine to actually get in there right. and pick these beans or these and cherries. This variety, this this is the variety that makes up most of the coffee that's produced or you know, had, uh, consumed around the world. And it's, 
it tends to be the more milder flavor, the aromatic flavor. Um, people think that this is also most likely the first of the actual like cultivated coffees of the world. This is probably the the first branch. Most coffees that are, are of this variety around the world nowadays are rarely have much of the original gene pool from where it came from. We have kind of mutations upon mutations. You know, as you get further away from the source, it's less like the original plant. But everything kind of seems to come from this. This is like the the step one of everything. Mm-hmm. And most likely, it's the first cultivated coffee that they actually found because right. of the, the where where it was. Um, so the second type of coffee that we are talking about is robusta, mm-hmm. and robustas are generally grown at a lower elevation. There, uh, I guess, a temperature range, I guess, for Arabica would be 59 degrees to 75 degrees Fahrenheit, and for Robusta, it'd be around 75 to 86, so definitely a higher temperature right. degree. And it's, uh, this is, like, this is more around the 20%, 15 to 20% of the coffee that's produced around the world is this Robusta variety, and it is a stronger, more full-bodied bean or flavor from it and because of that it also has more caffeine than the arabica did i say that right yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) um so this is the bean that's typically going to be used in things like espresso uh and interestingly it originated in kind of the central and sub-saharan african region uh but nowadays and this surprised me the robusta bean is most frequently produced the highest percentage of it is produced in vietnam Hmm. Um, and it was actually brought there by French colonists because uh, Vietnam was a French colony for a very long period of time, and they brought over. And that makes sense because when we think of the French roast, it's this darker roast, yeah. and so that's why we have this, you know, it's associated now with this robusta bean. For sh- generally, it's also a cheaper bean mm-hmm. to, to produce because you do have the automatic machines that can go by and pick up all these things, so you can get more of it so it's cheaper um, but I feel like nowadays people are a little bit more picky about their coffee. And right. so that's why the Arabica ones do taste generally better. Mm-hmm. I think they take better care um, in growing them. Um, the other thing you mentioned is like better for espresso. Just to clear, clarify for anybody just listening, uh, coffee beans can be used for espresso or coffee. It's just the way you actually brew it, which we're not going to get into brewing, mm. but just so you know. Yeah. Um, but Spencer was right. They they tend to generally use it more for espresso because it gives that stronger kick, and that's kind of what you're looking for. Yeah, and so the, the thing is, there are these two varieties of beans that make up the most, most of the coffee that's consumed, and... The way I I think about these beans and the flavor profiles that they have, I I equate it, the analogy is to wine grapes. So there are these two types of beans, but depending on the region that they're grown Mm -hmm. in terms of the, you know, the temperature that they're exposed to, the shading that they're exposed to, the soil content and everything like that is going to impact the flavor of that fruit and then the bean, just like, you know, a, a Sauvignon Blanc grape is going to taste different if it's grown in a particularly mountainous shaded region as opposed to a, like a warmer climate and so it it might they might all be robusta beans but they're going to taste differently depending on where they're grown it's it's kind of amazing that a lot of people don't realize that because coffee is consumed so easily anywhere you go dunkin donuts mm-hmm. or even just at your local diner 
that you're not even thinking about the taste too much because you had a lot of cream and sugar. But but after having it black and getting to really taste and sit down and enjoy the cup of coffee, you can try so many different things. And they're like some that you would rather have for breakfast and some that you would rather have like for afternoon. I went to one place and they're like, here, try this coffee. It basically tastes like tomato soup. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? Mm. And it was it was spicy and full and it, it tasted like tomato soup. It was kind of amazing. Like That's It was really sweet cool. like tomatoes, but it was still spicy. It, and I enjoyed it. And it was in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And it was probably one of the best cups of coffee that I ever had. It was really fantastic. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about the other aspect that kind of brings out those flavor profiles, the roasting aspect, a little bit later. But kind of the origin of some of that flavor profile is coming from where the bean is grown. Exactly. And then we see how the roasting process kind of alters that based off of a few variables. But... Before we can get to roasting, we have to talk about, all right, we know where these beans are grown, but how do we go about actually farming and, you know, picking them and making them something that we can use? Sure. So I mentioned before that uh, they use machines in a lot of these uh, farmers, especially for robusta, robusta beans. And basically, it's just a giant, looks like a car wash thing that mm-hmm. you kind of wash your car with, but it's just a little tractor that moves along and just kind of runs through the beans and it just kind of pushes all the cherries down. Oh, okay. Um, but another way that people do it, and a lot of the ways that people prefer is the hand-picked method, where you're actually picking the ripe cherries and leaving the other ones to ripen. And they'll actually go through the rows like a good seven or eight times mm-hmm. to make sure that they get every single one of the ripe beans just in case they missed them. Yeah, I saw an interesting thing that if if you do go that that hand-picked variety that oftentimes the people who are picking these these cherries pick anywhere between 100 and 200 pounds of these cherries throughout a day. And then you take that 100 or 200 pounds and only about 20% of that is actually going to be used for the, the bean itself. Mm-hmm. So that weight gets really shrunk down and so... It's interesting that you mentioned the idea that you got a, a chance to try some of that pulp earlier. And like the earliest renditions were eating that cherry. I'm wondering how much of that, that the 80% of the, the cherry, I'm, I'm hoping that we're starting to use that in other things now so that it's not just waste mm-hmm. at that point in time. It sounds like they're trying a lot more because, mm-hmm. yeah, they, it does get wasted for, for the most part, which is a shame. Yeah, because otherwise we're just going for that, that little bean that's inside of it. Um, so that the, the, we're either doing some sort of machine process or hand picking. People tend to prefer the hand picking because you're actually making sure you're getting the ripe, proper cherries at that point. Exactly, and and so you have all the beans that you have in these big baskets, and a lot of the times they'll go to if if a farm doesn't have it itself, they're part of these little co-ops and they have washing stations, mm-hmm. and all the farms will meet at this one washing station, and and I say washing. Washing is included in the whole drying process. So this is a pr- basic little processing station. Mm-hmm. And there are different ways that you can you can dry your coffee beans. The the most, I guess, the normal way and the way they used to do it back in the day was just take all the cherries, lay them out in the sun, and almost all the time they're sun-dried. Right. And they'll wait until the, the cherries get really, really um, dried out, and then they'll scrap away the, the fruit from it, and then, then they'll have the bean. Yeah, that that process can take anywhere from, like, 7 to 10 days, too. So it's a, it's a, kind of a long process, and they, just like anything that you're baking in the sun, you just have to kind of rake it occasionally to make sure that it, all the beans are getting exposed to the sun. But yeah, it's this long, natural drying process, sure. as opposed to 
uh, kind of a more hands-on approach, which you have mentioned here is kind of this wet, washed approach. Mm-hmm. Well, with that dry process, mm-hmm. um, they what it does is it creates a sweeter bean because the sun is drying out the cherry with the bean, and mm-hmm. so the flavors and the, the sweeter flavors of the cherry go into the bean. Oh, okay. And so that's when you get your sweeter coffees. When you do this other way, which is the, the washed or wet process, mm-hmm. what you do is you actually... You basically agitate all of this, uh, all the cherries, and you and you put them. Well, first, the first thing you do is you take all the cherries and you put them in the water. And any of them that float to the surface, they take away because those are not good. They're not ready. Uh, and then they'll take the rest of the um, the cherries once they get plumped up enough, and then they'll strip away all the fruit in this washing mm-hmm. process with water. And then they'll take the beans and actually just dry out the beans by themselves. And so those beans aren't as sweet as the natural drying process exactly. because that that the flavor infusion from the drying of the cherry into the bean isn't happening, that we're kind of just stripping it away with water. Exactly. And there's not exact. it's not only just two. You can actually have a combo of both mm. to where you only leave a little bit around the bean and then let that and dry let that out. Dry. Yeah, so it's just, it depends on, like, the flavor profiles of coffee starts, like, from, from when you plant the bean, from where it is, right. to this, too. That, like, you can change it so many different ways. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, is there are just so many steps along the way where someone can really decide where they want to start designing the flavor mm-hmm. of that bean and changing it. From, and you can take a bunch of beans that are all grown from the same region, so they have one flavor profile, but then you dry half of them one way and dry the other half a different way, and they're going to taste very different from one another. That's, yeah. It's very cool to me. It's though. really neat. Because it's a sort of science and art at the same time sort of thing, where there's this very scientific process in terms of understanding, like, when to pick it and various drying processes, but then it's also a little free form in terms of thinking about when you want to and how long and to what extent you want to do each of these steps. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, the other way you could do is decaf. Decaf is normally done by using a bunch of chemicals, uh, like solvents like methylene chloride and all this terrible stuff to strip away this caffeine. But they just came out, not just came out, but they came out with a process that's the Swiss water process. Oh, and it, okay. It 100% chemical free and it just uses high pressured water and it gets rid of the caffeine that way so you i mean your coffee still is decaf and it probably won't taste the best because it's not like fully mm-hmm. like i mean it's not the way you normally drink coffee sure. but it you won't have all these harmful chemicals that are being used in in creating the the decaf coffee right so once we once we've dried out our beans either through the natural process the the wet process or some sort of hybrid of the two they do a, kind of a, one of the final steps is a thing called hulling, where they basically just remove any of those remaining layers. Because as Mike was describing the fruit at the beginning of the episode, there are many layers to the cherry and everything in between. And so they want to make sure that they get all those those casing layers and everything like that off so that we get down just to the unroasted bean, which is actually a green bean, mm-hmm. uh, or it's, it's greenish in color. And they call it a green bean when it's in this unroasted form. Uh-huh. And the green beans, once they're dried out, they can like they can stay dry for a long period of time. You'll have warehouses of coffee mm-hmm. that just have giant bags of green beans, and that's what coffee companies and distributors will actually buy, just the straight up green beans. Yeah, and uh, we have a a note here that those unroasted, those green beans, about seven million tons of it are traded in a given year. Ridiculous. That's- a lot of beans. But, I mean, think about it. If you have coffee every day and then you live in a big city knowing that most people are drinking coffee every day, it's a lot of beans that you're going to need yeah. there. What's 7 million tons? A ton's 1,000 pounds. 7 so, million tons is... It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I'm going to try to do math. 
Um, so then the unroasted beans go actually to a what's called a Q grader. And the Q grading system is something that uh, they started doing to basically grade all the coffees and, and figure out, okay, what's going to be the best coffees from the right farms. And what this does is it makes the farmers take better care in their coffee. Okay. And so we get better coffee uh, based on this grading system. Okay. And a lot of the times a, um, a company will have a Q grader and they'll take, they'll bring a bunch of samples of just green coffee. I work for a coffee company and I see the Q grader always have stacks of green coffee on her desk, mm-hmm. uh, and just little, little things. And she'll roast small batches and then cup them and try to taste them and figure out, okay, well, what tastes the best? Do we like this? Do we want to try a new blend? Do we want to do this? And, and with her, she can create blends. And so they're not just specific from region. She can combine two if she wants to make new flavors. But we'll get into that. Yeah, that blending process, like you said, we, we'll get into it. It reminds me again of the analogy of the wine process mm-hmm. and making wine blends and kind of picking which grapes from a particular region work best with one another to create a very different flavor profile. Sure. So we have all these unroasted beans, all these green beans. They've they've passed a test, hopefully. They're, they've been deemed worthy to go on to the next step. And the next step being the actual roasting process of these beans, turning them into from that raw form into the bean that we know and love these days that gives us coffee. Sure. And so the the green coffee is is usually uh, put into a giant hopper on the top of this giant roasting machine. And it's basically just a big drum that will tumble the coffee inside of it and slowly roast it. Now, there are other ways of doing it. There's something called air roasted, oh. where it actually uses hot air and just blows the coffee around in hot air until it's roasted. And so oh. with a drum, though, I feel like you have... It, it basically it's, it's no contact with the drum. You have contact with the sides of the drum. In this big air roasting thing, you don't have any contact. So I think their idea is that there's no burn to it, and it's not a there's not like any better way to do it. Right. People have figured out how to do this air roasted, opposed to using the drum. It's just it's just like if you were making popcorn in a pot, you want to kind of keep that popcorn moving from time to time, so that if or really if you're sauteing anything from in a pan, if you're not mixing that up from time to time, it's just going to stick to that hot side surface and burn. And exactly. So, we want to keep the beans moving, and that's why the drum is either constantly rotating or it has this air process. Mm, so imagine a cement truck, basically, yeah. and that's that's what is roasting, except a big fire underneath that cement truck constantly heating up the drum. And so it gets to about 550 degrees Fahrenheit, mm. so it's fairly hot roasting these beans. Um, and like Spencer was saying, they move so they don't burn, and then the roaster will actually have a little sample stick and they'll stick it inside, and they'll occasionally pull it out and see the color of the bean. So it starts green, then it'll turn a little yellow, and then it'll turn darker. Mm-hmm. And with the sample stick, you can, you can it's basically a stick with a little opening that you can just pull straight from whatever's in the drum. Mm-hmm. And with the sample stick, you can pull it out, and you can smell it and smell where what's going to happen to the beans. And the, the green beans smell like just kind of like green grassy kind of smell but then as it starts to heat up it starts smelling more like hay like dried out grass mm. and then eventually it starts smelling more like your coffee uh and it's, it smells really good i got to sit in sure. on one of these roasting processes and it was really really neat that's right. but that's also the job of the roaster it's not it can be all electronic and measure all that but having that that physical roaster there mm. testing and figuring out well what temperature is this thing going to pop first yeah, and that's that's the thing is eventually it, the the bean after a certain period of time is going to what is called pop or crack or something. It'll make a noise, and 
the bean will effectively double in size. Mm -hmm. Just like when you're cooking some popcorn, you're, you're keeping an ear out. So the roaster is not only looking at color and getting the aroma of it, but they're also using their, their auditory senses to listen for that distinctive pop to know that they've kind of moved on to the next step of the roasting process here. The roaster who was teaching me, he was like, he, he's pulled out some samples before where he puts his nose down to sniff it and it pops in his face. <laughs> And what, what goes on after this pop then is there's all these oils that are in the bean and they are starting to get extracted as the bean is getting, uh, the, as the temperature of the bean is increasing and the, the oils are called coffee essence. Um, and what they do then is those oils are emerging from the inside of the bean and going to the outside and if there's oil and there's heat, it's going to cause a browning uh, process and that's why you're starting to get some of that the darkening of the bean. And then on top of that, if you leave it in even longer for some of those dark roasts, then you're starting to get some of the sugars to come out. And that's where you're getting like a caramelization process. Like if you were caramelizing onions on a stove, it's this long process where it's a slow roast and eventually the sugars come out and they cook the outside. Mm -hmm. And generally when you do that, the, the oil essence kind of goes away and really what you're doing is focusing on the flavor of the mm -hmm. caramelization. So if you want to focus on those certain regions and, and those certain flavor profiles that are all set up to you before then, that's when you, you look at the oil, and that's when you're really going to try to focus on sure. is that oil flavor. Um, when you do create a darker roast, it does kind of get rid of that. Um, that's why a lot of, sometimes you're like, this coffee tastes burnt. It's because it was burnt when it was, when it was uh, mm -hmm. roasted. And some people love that. Yeah. Um, I personally like a lighter or a medium roast to where I can actually taste the flavors. But you don't want to go too light, and that's up to the roaster as well because then it'll just taste like on cooked coffee <laughs> yeah so like you know kind of like we've mentioned this roasting process is the the last step in the thing that it, it seems very analogous to beer brewing to me mm -hmm. in this wine making process where the person really can take the time to, to think about how long do they want it to brew or like what sort of barrel are you going to put the wine in? is it going to be stainless steel is it going to be oak that's going to create a different flavor profile the roaster really gets this sort of free freeform freedom time to think about how long they want to roast things to what temperature like the, and they like we said earlier they're using all of their senses in order to kind of decide what is the flavor profile that they're going for mm -hmm. and i think i think people don't realize that coffee is this way yeah and there are so many different specialty coffee places and places there are certain places that make it feel pretentious and and feel like, well, I'm not good enough to know about this coffee. But mm -hmm. I, I guess technically, and there's some places that wine is like that too. Right. I feel more and more, though, it's getting more accessible and people are realizing that they can access coffee and better coffee for cheaper. Mm -hmm. And and what I'm hoping, like I, what I'm hoping in the future, mm -hmm. I see a vision. But seriously, though, I, I, really, I really hope more people try to try different coffees, try different cuppings and like brewing their own at home, but sure. like knowing how to brew it. Cause that's, that's a whole nother thing too, yeah. which also brings out certain flavors in the coffee. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really neat process and you're like, you're spot on when it, it's very much like wine or it, beer. I, I love talking about coffee with Mike because he, he knows a lot about it. And I, I, I know very little about the co I've only recently started getting into coffee, and so I always love picking Mike's brain. So I was excited when we, we decided that coffee trading was going to be the, the topic of this because I knew that I was going to learn a lot from Mike during the, <laughs> during the episode. So I've, I've really enjoyed kind of just sitting here and being like, oh, tell me more. What's, what's next? <laughs> uh, so we didn't, real quick, didn't finish up the roasting. Mm. Uh, what happens is after it's in the drum, once it's ready, they pour it out into a big old basin. 
Uh, and it's another thing that that rotates and cools the coffee as it's sitting there because you it, once it's once it's heated you don't want to cook it anymore. Um, and then there's a fan that actually sucks any extra little particles down opposed to blowing it out mm-hmm. to cool it out. And so it sucks it up, and then the coffee beans again go through another little channel to work, to get rid of any chaff or any extra little coating sure. on the coffee. Um, and ultimately, after that's done, then you have fresh coffee ready to brew and you grind it and start brewing it and then enjoying it all those steps to, to finally get that that pound of, of coffee beans that you either take home or have ground for you at the shop and yeah it's a it, really it, it's a really interesting process yeah uh, and and it's really good to know where everything does come from and mm-hmm. and and make sure that when you do get coffee that I know it's important to a lot of people but like ethically farm coffee and you're mm-hmm. not getting coffee from something that's not paying their workers enough or right. or something along those lines. So it's it's a neat it's a neat topic and I could talk about it for days. Sure. <laughs> and I I mean I love listening to it, but uh I think that's where we're probably not going to go into the idea of like brewing coffee and everything like that. That's that's another thing that we could we could that's go down a whole rabbit hole other episodes of, for yeah, sure. That's, that's an hour of all the different methods <laughs> of that. But that that should hopefully give you an idea and appreciation of the farming and production process side of coffee coffee production and that is just but one of maybe 11-ish, 12-ish beans that are in Bonanza. Uh, so I guess if we really wanted to, we could go into all of them, except, of course, the blue bean, the the, the made-up bean. Yeah, the, the gun-toting bean, according to this little card. Mm-hmm. He looks like a little cowboy. Uh, also, I don't think we want to go too much into the process of the stink bean. The stink bean? I, can't, I don't know what a stink bean's used for. Uh, I looked it up real quick, and there's actually some like Thai dishes that use it. Oh, so, but I didn't, I didn't go too far down that <laughs> rabbit hole. Uh, but that'd be interesting to know more about. Well, do you got anything else? That's all I got. Perfect. Well, thank you guys for listening to the episode today. If you liked listening, uh, and if you enjoyed what you heard, uh, go ahead and subscribe. We got new episodes, and they're generally 30 minutes to 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. But you'll get a new episode every week, every beginning of the week. So you can listen to it at work, or in the car, or just on a nice little jog. Maybe you're out with your dog. Maybe you're drinking your fresh cup of coffee. Your morning coffee. There you go. Uh, If you have any questions or comments or want to let us know what your favorite kind of coffee is, go ahead and email them to beyondtheboardpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at goingbtb. That's BTB for Beyond the Board or BTB for Beans That Brew. Beans That Brew. I love that. Uh, Yeah, and you can always see what we're going on there or maybe get sneak peeks on what the next episode's going to be. So give Bonanza a chance, and uh, maybe if you're playing with your friends, you realize that eventually you want to be a stink bean farmer. 